keep in a backup just in, in the event that that company completely goes away or, you know, you get kind of the million dollar mistake that we all we all sometimes make in our career of like dropping a production database or deleting the entire hard drive or something. What is up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we speak to Mike Wilbanks, who is currently the CTO at Spark Labs. We get into Mike's passion for development and technology and how he got into tech to now running and being a CTO at Spark Labs. We covered topics around design patterns to how databases have evolved and challenges with developing applications, right? and a whole lot of generative AI and how it needs to be embraced by users such as developers and companies. So pump up that volume and get ready for a really intriguing and passionate conversation with Mike Wilbanks. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's exciting to have you on the podcast. And, you know, I know you've been really busy, but you took the time to come. I really wanted to say thank you for taking the time off. And, you know, we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited about it. All right. That's awesome. So as we kick it off, Mike, I mean, you know, I thought the first thing, you know, before we get into what you have done in your, your past, like tell us a little bit more about Spark Labs and what you guys do, uh, what your current role at Spark Labs is. Yeah. So um, Spark Labs, we are essentially a development agency, uh, but we also kind of operate a little bit differently than most of the other agencies out there and that we also kind of come up with some of our own products bring those products to market and, uh, you know, kind of work a little bit more like an incubator inside of that side of our business. And then, you know, likewise, we're, we're a software development agency. So we're constantly, you know, working with several different clients, building out various different tooling technologies. And so a lot of our ideas sometimes comes from that as well. Just like, Hey, you know, I think there's a hole in the market here. Uh, maybe that's something we could plug up or, you know, we always build these same things over and over again. Why don't we just make a solution out of it? You know, right. it gets, uh, you know, so we just don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. You've been in the CTO role now at Spark Labs, but before you were a CTO, but all throughout your career, you've been a programmer, right? That's correct. So yeah, kind of grew up programming, got into programming, still love programming. Um, and I, I kind of got into engineering management and I love engineering management. Um, but somehow I always find myself back behind the keyboard, working on solutions, building different things. And no matter how much I try to get out of it, no matter which company I go to, they always find a way to get me back coding at some yeah. degree or some level. So yeah. Yeah, I think uh, interesting. And I think you should always stick to your passion too, right? While you're making a change, you know, you should never forget your roots and what you're passionate about, which is like development, which is awesome. When we spoke for the last time, it was it was such a great conversation. I thought part of that conversation was like a podcast that we had, uh, you know, when I went back and kind of heard that. But, you know, I was excited because you you have really good opinions and, you know, you were saying you're a highly opinionated person about technology. And some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about in the podcast was around things that you have different opinions on. But before we get into that, I really wanted to kind of go back and, you know, ask you about how you started and, you know, got into all of this, right? Talk us a little bit about, uh, you know, you've had a very storied career for 20, 30 years doing, you know, and working on amazing technology. But how did it all begin? What really, where was that first spark in uh, somebody like you who led you to get to something like Spark Labs? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a fun story. It's an interesting story, I guess, you know. Um, 
I always just had a knack for computers, you know, from, from the second my dad had his first one, I taught him how to use his first laptop, right? You know, he brings his laptop home. He has no idea how to, you know, barely used computers before. I've never touched one before. And, and I see this thing. I'm like, oh, hey, look at this. I'm like, oh, you can go do this. And, you know, it's this, it's easy. You know, it's intuitive. So just right from the get-go, I just had a little knack for it, right? And, you know, as time kind of got on, I was, uh, you know, just super interested in, in technology as a whole and some of the different games that were out there, just learning everything. And uh, internet came, you know, so that was kind of the real cool stuff, right? Nice. And I'm like, hey, you know what? How do I get, you know, my dad had a business line in the basement, so it wouldn't plug up the main line for dial-up. And I was like, well, you know, you got all these CDs with all these free minutes, right? And so the, the thing after that was, okay, well, how do I get it? Because first off, you know, you used to just be able to get another CD and just sign up again and, and it would let you do it. But then they started kind of blocking it off by uh, kind of like a computer's Mac address. So then I right. figured out how to manipulate the Windows registry to get free internet. Yeah. So I could just get in, you know, just keep re-signing up, just different Mac address and another 900 free minutes, you know. Oh. Um, so that kind of really got me into my forte of just kind of the internet and computers back when web pages, you know, Netscape browser wars were going on with Internet Explorer and, right. you know, we haven't heard the name Netscape forever, it's, you know, Firefox, yeah, yeah. Exists. but yeah, I, I guess that kind of really got my entrance into things. And then, you know, I just started getting really interested in like, Hey man, I want to build a web page. I wonder how you do this. Like, how does this work? You know, so, so I started just kind of learning from that perspective and taught myself Linux when back when, you know, we first got uh, cable internet and, you know, back then, like you couldn't just go and download most of these things. So I, right. I basically got in Linux before that had happened and, and kind of toyed around with it, but, you know, lack of any internet didn't really, you know, work for me. And so internet came through, we finally got cable and I'm sitting there talking to the guys and in the um, network operations center, trying to figure out like, how can I get my, my network card to talk to you guys? Right. <laughs> so, you know, about three, four months later, I finally figured it out. Yeah. Um, you know, a whole bunch of different news groups, servers, like, Hey, I have this card. I have this distribution. Why won't it work? And I'm like, I'm using this ISP. They're like, Oh yeah, there's this strange setting and only certain network cards work. And yeah. So yeah, I kind of get down that road and, um, you know, just start teaching myself HTML. At first I thought I like needed front page, you know, this is how bad it was. Right. It's like, Oh, you need front page to develop websites. And man, that was, that would have been a really bad move to go down that route. But, right. Right. Um, you know, just started learning from scratch, you know, what I could find off like specification websites and just playing around and, and, you know, I was kind of in high school and got into this program where, you know, it was more of a graphic design thing and um, had built out like a band membership page that was mm. actually getting pretty popular. You know, found out how to register a domain name. Back then, you could just go to a website, type in your domain and uh, get, right? Like you had to fax internet with what you wanted. And then they snail mail you a response and right. you might not know for 30 to 60 days whether you got your domain or not. Or not, yeah. Wow. And I mean, you can modify your name servers and stuff, you know, online, but you couldn't, you couldn't register it online. Right. And so I kind of figured that part out. And then, you know, there's these hosting companies. At first it was like shared hosting and, you know, virtual machines weren't really a thing yet. You know, they, they were 
bean counter. So you'd get like your own little home directory and, and run your little site. And, um, those didn't really work well. They were always super buggy. And at that point, I'm like, oh, I need a bulletin board for my community. And so then I, you know, put up this bulletin board software that was written in Perl. And so now I'm learning Perl because I want to customize it. Right. Back then, you know, Flash was kind of the super cool thing. So I start learning Action Script and Flash. And, oh my God. Yeah. You know, we all know how bad Flash ended up being. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. You know, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I'm like, hey, there's programming language PHP, you know, and that kind of really jumpstarted my career at that point. And it was back in the days of PHP 3, uh, right before they kind of went to 4. So I was kind of learning a little bit more of the modernization ones, modern languages and, you know, really got into it, started actually reading like the source code, um, reading the manuals, figuring out, you know, all the different things. You know, how do I lock things down? How do I make things so they're secure? Right. Because, you know, at that point in time, a lot of us didn't really care about security. Right. You know, you could you could basically hack anything you wanted at that point because it really it was wasn't nice. all that hard. Oh, yeah. You it know, we so stored more passwords. And, yeah. We, yeah. We stored passwords like MD5 was like awesome encryption, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, it's not encryption, you know, really just hashing it. But, you know, yeah. whatever. You know, and then we start learning about bcrypt and stuff like that. So as time kind of went on, you know, I, I learned all these tools, started a company with my father at that point, you know, started going to school, ended up dropping um, because I was at a startup, you know, where we were just going crazy, right? Um, oh, yeah. We were building websites for real estate people, had a whole software system built out, two different owners, company breaks up, I have to start it all over from scratch, you know, and... Uh, kind of just took off from there. Right. I mean, yeah. I ended up starting, you know, went to a software development agency after that, a book publisher after that, you know, all sorts of different, you know, fun little career moves and no particular, like there, I never specialized in like one, one category. And right. So I had always been like, Hey, I've always done everything. I know yeah. systems. I know, you know, how to program. I know databases. I know how to build the website, you know. Back then, we didn't have full stack developers. So, yeah, full stack developer before there was a definition. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, from the sound, sounds like you were a full stack developer way before full stack developer was a thing, you know, uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I used to tell people nowadays, they're like, oh, you need to know so many different languages. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But, you know, when I started, you had to know how the entire networking stack worked. You needed to know how to operate. Like, you know, the programmers would tell system administrators how to configure their programming language. Right. Yeah. And yeah. People now just expect it to work. And I mean, there's that, so much, there's so much that has changed, right? Like in 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, and when you were saying that, it's like anybody who's listening who's been through that era. Uh, you know, I like I went to engineering 2006, I believe, you know, like, but I was, doing computers since 2002. So it was right after the dot-com era of kind of bubble busting. And then I, I hated Flash and I was just testing out things on my own. Uh, you know, like, so I could relate with, so the other day there was PHP and we would go to W3 schools to learn how to do HTML coding. Oh, yeah. We were talking about that era, right? The internet was uh, American Online and we tried to explore, but Internet uh, Explorer was like there. Uh, and from what you were saying, like, I was just thinking that's an era that we have not experienced. New developers or younger generation, 
of developers or new people are not going to experience that. The struggle to find the right documentation, to look for an answer is, <laughs> that was that was the era of trying to look for a problem or a data point. And Google search kind of came in at this time, kind of took over, took off and kind of started helping out. And people realizing we really need to index things properly so people can find us and things like that. So I feel like it's exciting how things have changed. And this last 12, 13, 15 years is probably, if you were, if you were a programmer, Coming into the industry now, if the kind of things you were looking for, how would that be for you? You know, like everything is available right now, like the documentation, yeah. community slacks, stack overflow. What do you think about that? I think it's crazy. I mean, the, the hard part now is just that there's so much material and who exactly. do you listen to, right. right? Like, where do you get involved? Do you attach yourself to, you know, the language, the framework, you know, a specific technology, like where where do you go with that? I mean, right, there's right. so many different things. So let's dive it's, let's dive into that, right? I want to know, like, how do you make that decision now? Like, so let's let's get to the now. We, we had this phase where you would use what was available to you, and then now we have this plethora of multiple languages, frameworks, you know, databases. So we've gone from NoSQL to SQL to distributed uh, database. Well, I would say so my bad. SQL to NoSQL <laughs> to distributed SQL. So we'll get into the database part maybe later, but how do you go into making design decisions for your know, use cases that you have, especially now that you work at Spark Labs in the capacity of engineering manager slash CTO, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of different, you know, options out there and there's a lot of different architectures. And they're all, you know, each each one of them has their pluses and minuses. Right. And so, you know, we've basically standardized, you know, on on a particular stack that we like, that works well for us, that a lot of, you know, our people work well at. Right. And and most of our decisions have come from just, you know, my background and my history and kind of influencing some of those. And, you know, I put the kibosh on a lot of different things over the, you know, over the years. But I, I guess it's going to make more sense to just give a small history of, of what I have done kind of throughout my career to kind of ex, kind of pre-explain what I'm about to say. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. You know, I love to look at it from a, a system standpoint, um, right. because if we start off like with kind of the so-called computing era, it's it's a little bit easier to understand when we're looking at kind of a, a, a dead system, right? Like if we're just looking at like the Linux OS and how we're going to run that, right? So, um, you know, first we traditionally started off with things like bare metal computing, which is just, you know, here here is your machine. There wasn't a VM, your VMs. Um, later that came on were called bean counters. They just kind of counted how much resources you were using for your user and tried to limit you. Right. Um, after that, we kind of got into like KVM and all of the cool virtual machine technologies that we have now. Then we got into, you know, containerization, which is kind of the Dr. Kubernetes side. And now we're kind of into that mode of functions as a service, uh, which is, you know, our AWS Lambdas and all this serverless technology that we're using right. today. And so I'd like to say, like, I apply kind of these same principles to um, how I approach development as a whole is that, you know, if you were to take that kind of whole systems era and you kind of skipped a generation, mm. you really weren't missing too much. I mean, yeah, we we skipped bean counters. Who cares about those? Those are basically dead. You know, um, now you have kind of the, the KVM side of it, which is what most modern right. virtual machines were built off of. 
And then now we're into the era of kind of the functions as a service, which kind of base lines off of our predecessor, which is, you know, Docker and Kubernetes. Right. And so there's still nothing wrong with Docker or Kubernetes, but I like to skip that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and by skipping that generation just kind of allows me to have a little bit more focus and not have to focus in at, at you know, everything that's brand new, everything that's coming out right now, because if you do that, you're just going to kind of cycle, right? right. Const- you're in a constant verge of cycling and revamping and rebuilding and, and doing it again and again and again. And there's needs for those, right? But, you know, unless you're running you know, multiple millions of dollars through your infrastructure, you know, the, the gains for you are probably being lost in terms of resource costs. Right. And so I'll kind of explain what we do today from an architectural standpoint. You know, I'd say the vast majority of everything we build is all serverless today. Right. Um, there's very little that isn't serverless. And usually the only reason will be is if there is a specific need and it's going to drop their costs or otherwise. Most of the time I can get away with using, you know, AWS Lambda and being just fine on the compute side. There are times where, you know, putting in place Fargate is going to lower my cost substantially or using AWS spot instances for various types of processing instead of using Lambda. But that can be workload dependent, right? Right. And so mainly we build everything serverless, whether it's in Azure, whether it's in GCP, whether it's in AWS. All three of those different ones, we use a, a variety of them. And we've started getting to where we're starting to mix and match a few different things. Right. Because one of the big things with cloud providers and that, you know, constantly happens, it happens whenever, you know, US East one goes down, which is the most common one oh, Amazon go down, right? Because that's where they put all the new stuff. And it usually happens right after reinvent. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, Get, I mean, I swear, within the first three months after reInvent, one of their system, one of their regions goes down for like an is, elongated period and brings the whole internet down. Yeah, and and you know they've constantly told people don't rely on a single region. Well, people rely on a single region, and things go down in the whole internet. It's like half the internet's down. Right. But so we've gotten into a lot of multiple regions, and now starting to get into a little bit more of multi-cloud. And the only reason we're doing multi-cloud is really to use some of the different clouds for what they're best at. Got it. Right. So we don't like to do authentication ourselves because we feel like that opens us up to, you know, a potential litigation if there was any type of exposure. If we, you know, use AWS Cognito, now the onus is on AWS to keep that stuff secure. Right. If we use a Google Cloud Identity Platform, it's on them. Right. Um, speaking multi-regionally, AWS Cognito is not very good for that. Um, you can either segment people off into their own, you know, areas or not. And, uh, it, it's not, you know, global by default. It, yeah, I think so, it just, you were telling me last time when you started to add complexities that then you don't want to operate on. So you're like, well, we'll just use something else. So. Right. Yeah. We, we came up with a whole design pattern to, to kind of get around that. And we lose some of the, you know, some of the security abilities that we could do, you know, from the how we're passing in passwords. We basically have to pass those into the back end. Then we're thinking, okay, well, we can do that. And we've got to put it onto, um, you know, some type of a queue, you know, and uh, after that, we've got to replicate it to all the different regions for every operation that happens. Right. It's like, yeah, that's, that's going to be a lot of extra work. And got so it, yeah. Google Identity Platform has that baked in to where it's already global. So why not just use that? Right. right. So, um, um, Oh, yeah, I let you complete and I had a thought that I wanted to check with you on. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So I was going to say, when you're you're talking about this paradigm that you now kind of follow a design pattern is use serverless, right? Pretty much everywhere. Are you talking about serverless in the form of like APIs with Lambda functions? Are you talking about the front end part of it? Or are you talking about the back end itself uh, where you're like bringing more event driven architecture to kind of solve the problems that you have in front of you? All of it. All of it, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So from from the back end perspective, you know, we're building out APIs in serverless. Uh, we're doing a whole bunch of event based things in serverless. Um, our GraphQL layer, if we're building a GraphQL layers in serverless. Gotcha. Uh, you know, we we do operate a little bit differently than most. We never really got onto the microservice movement. Um, I'd say we kind of, you know, we use microservices when they make sense. Otherwise, we build a monolith on top of Lambda. And so that'll be kind of like if if we bring it to like Node.js, you know, we're using Fastly or uh, we're going to use um, Express or we're going to use Apollo on top of. And you use Apollo for your GraphQL, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so most of that is just because we can leverage um, better concurrency control from that. Because yeah. a lot of the things that you run into is that you'll end up, you know, triggering yourself into where you're being throttled. Um and then you have to go ask for request limited increases. Uh, also, you're dealing with, you know, cold boot times and startup times. And, and you can vastly, you know, for the vast majority of times, you can avoid that by by kind of having your model sit in there. Got it. Uh, you know, it depends on the company size too, right? Like if all of your endpoints are heavily trafficked, then by all means, you know, go microservice. Right, right. But for, I'd say, you know, 95% of the companies we have worked with, it just hasn't made any sense. Right, right. So, yeah. you know, they're happier, we're happier. It's it, easier to manage. I think it also navigates like cost perspective, right? Where you're like, well, yep. if it's serverless, you just pay for what you use. And and then if you aren't, if you're not operating at a place where you don't really need 20 million users hitting your website, then maybe serverless is a better, is is that what goes into the design thinking for this? That That is a lot of it. And, right. you know, for some of the higher traffic ones, we've even just done um, with Fargate and that, that has done really well. Okay. Um, you know, there's been other ones where we've actually dockerized the container and, you know, gone gone through more of a traditional based process. You know, right. there's even ones that are on, you know, just standard VMs. Um, but, you know, we've tried to move everybody away from VMs because they're harder to manage and yes. that we have to spend time managing them and monitoring them. And, you know, it's just, you know, if I, I would rather have everything set up auto scale with the visibility so that I'm getting alerted in the event that that certain things aren't working, okay. but yet have everything that I possibly can automatically scale up and down because it's just a nightmare to manage it yourself unless you have a very large DevOps team. Yeah, yeah. And even if you do, like you can, you can really, you know, bring your costs down and you get a massive cost savings from like a resource perspective, right? Because 95% of our operating costs in, in terms of most companies are resource. Right. And people, right? Yeah. And I, I was I was thinking like one of the things like that skipped from VMs and avoiding Kubernetes in, in this particular case makes sense for the kind of size of use cases and the companies that you operate on is because you don't really want to get in an SRE and fade their SRE and manage all of that when you can have all of that automated on the cloud with like the just clicking on the elastic, auto elastic capability that those yeah. platforms provide. 
yeah, getting elastic beam stock or or whatnot, you know, yeah. and and most of those are based off of you know Docker Kubernetes and and basically have like a zookeeper in front of them, you know. Yeah. It's it's not zookeeper. it's not like a lot of you know very very difficult things, but the more you can automate, you know, the more you can get in terms of you know most types of savings, and so that's kind of a lot of what we look at, and that's what a lot of our clients care about. Um, whether it's, you know, small ones or large ones, right? So, I mean, we've had several Fortune 500s where we've done, you know, serverless infrastructure for them. And they're like, wow, I think we're going to move more of our workloads to this. So what's the, why do you think that that driver or that chain in the space is coming? Like now people just don't want a region, they want multi-region. Of course, I mean, we've talked about resiliency, but we used to have situations where folks are like, well, we need disaster recovery, but serverless and, Technologies now allow you to don't think about disaster recovery because your your peer to peer architecture you don't have a master involved in cer- certain of these technologies. Why do you think companies are responding to that kind of a paradigm now? Is it because they feel like they just want a no touch kind of system where they don't their their CEO never gets to know something went down? Is that what it is? I I think that's a lot of it. I mean, yeah. in in my opinion, it also reduces a lot of complexity. Right. right. It's easier to understand from all, oh, I mean, from a, from a very high level, if I, you know, when we present charts to people and like how their system's going to work, we don't give them all the nits and crannies of like how all the events are going to be processed because yeah, that, that, that's complex. But, yeah. you know, from a high level standpoint, it, it, it just looks really easy. It goes into this little cloud thing and uh, then this gets handled over here by this little guy and comes back across the wire and everything, everybody's happy. Yeah. It, it just, you know, you don't have to touch it. You don't have to say like, oh, we need to, you know, make sure that we scale up the database um, at this point in time, because we know our peak load's going to happen between the hours of, you know, five and 10. So we need to right. make sure that we have additional resources scheduled to go in there. But, oh man, if it, it's Black Friday, We've got to make sure that, you know, for the next two weeks, we just, you know, we shove a hundred thousand dollars at it for, for no reason at all, other than we just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, Completely I think sense. if we go to like the data side of it, that's, that's a lot of it. Um, you know, prior organizations I've been at, like any type of like huge marketing push or promotion, we literally had to scale up environments to prep for that. Hmm. And then if that marketing failed, it's like the IT expenditure just in that case was horrible yeah right like oh wow it's not working did they turn it on yet like <laughs> there's no traffic right and that's so, like a lot of a lot, a lot of waste of resources and finance and you know things that can be kind of rerouted and re-rolled uh, you know i also feel yeah. like from what you were saying like those paradigms i like those paradigms or like those patterns because i don't want to really in today's day and age set stuff up put somebody's effort into building that up when i can do research with that person and say, explore different things that we need to do to improve the overall product and the objectives that we have. Um, so completely makes sense. I do want to ask you a question uh, with that. With Where do you put your um, most amount of effort then in terms of where do you find the most problems kind of setting up? Is it in the data layer? Is it in setting up the infrastructure um, or it just bringing everything together? Like where do you kind of struggle the most in that, you know, set up? Typically, just trying to think through that. It, it's various areas. I guess I can give a few different examples because it's, I would say 
95% of our largest um, challenges for various projects has been likely on the authentication side of things. Gotcha. Um, and that mainly just comes in because some of our clients don't like to keep it simple, mm. right? Um, it doesn't kind of follow any paradigm. So we're writing, you know, against all of these various hooks that these systems put out, you know, anywhere from like, we are writing our own two-factor authentication methods, um, pre-signup, like we're merging all sorts of different types of data and there's, you know, potentially 500 different flows that this person can go through before they even get their account. Right. Right. Uh, those, those are always the most painful, uh, for us, at least, you know, the easiest ones are like federated identities. You know, you just, oh, you can sign up with that, whatever method you want. Yeah. Or you can just click Google and just sign in and, right. and everybody's happy. Right. Those are awesome. Um, the other part is, I guess, you know, payment processing is always a nightmare. Right. Um, you know, there's, you know, if you're using Stripe, it's always super easy. Stripe, right. But then yeah. you get into some of these fringe payment processors because they're saving like a point on their, you know, percentages and they don't support anything out of the box other than like they they give you a hash for the credit card and you can process right. it. Now you're writing your own subscription components. Yeah. You know, they don't really support and, and you're trying to, you know, ensure that you're following PCI compliance. So you have to pre-tokenize it. Not all of them support it, like from an API call. So then you're you know, writing, like you have to use like their special frame and nothing works right. And yeah, right. those are like our biggest challenges from a technical point of view. Like most of our challenges is probably comes down to there's just a ton of different services that you can use and which ones that you should use and what you use cases should you use them. Right. And then the, the last of it comes down to how are you going to model this data? Got it. And Got it. how is that data going to be used? Because oftentimes, you know, what we end up finding out is, so we're designing our system for all this transactional hierarchy and, and things like that. And, you know, from how they kind of want to use that data, um, not even getting into the warehousing part, it might just be, you know, this is ultimately more like an OLAP layer Agree. They they just want to basically see it in very strange ways, and indexing that data can be very difficult. Right, right. Um, and so then you end up, you know, either creating replicas of of that so they can index it differently, so you don't impact your production data sets. But when you're getting into like um, such things like CockroachDB serverless, where you are essentially replicating that data, you know, geographically, and and we're using something you know like to that degree. You have to make decisions based off of, okay, like what's the data latency that, that this person will afford me? Can I actually put it into a warehouse and get around it that way? Right. Do I have to hit the transactional system? Right. And so those are questions I think everybody ends up having is, you know, where do we source the data from? Yeah. And I mean, ideally you can just push it into a warehouse and be done with it. But there are certain times where it's like, no, I got to have it real time. Right. Like, well. You know, in a programmer's mind, there is no such thing as real time. It is near real time. Yeah, yeah. We will make it look like it's real time, but it is not. It's not real time. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, we we just build off a ton of things that are based off of, you know, queuing and, and basically hooks, right? So, yeah. you know, event sourcing and, um, you know, whether, whether you're using, 
any of the various different queuing systems, right? You can you can use EventBridge, which you know we we tend to love more now. Um, early on, not so much, but but now that you can get global access points for it, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise we did all like kind of the SNS to SQS, and you know, being able to do you know some more advanced messaging patterns that used to be pretty great. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'll be I wouldn't be surprised if somebody comes to you and says, "Well, the only thing you can use is RabbitMQ or something." You know, like. See, I've done some pretty amazing workloads on Rabbit. So it's pretty, it's pretty darn fast. But yeah. you know, if I can, if I can make somebody else have to manage that infrastructure for oh, me, right. I'm going to do it. Right? Yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge, it, especially with the way we want to in, manage infrastructure today. You know, some people will feel like, why are we going so backwards? 2010, maybe. But <laughs> what I wanted to ask was one, uh, or what I'm in was intrigued was was you get to touch a lot of different technologies kind of explore them uh and test it out and in in doing so what you've done in your career over the last 15 years is get exposed to so many different technologies and have an opinion about them if not in depth but at least at a high level as to if it solves a problem or not and today that problem has multiplied because you have like 20 databases or three different cloud providers <laughs> telling their own cloud databases or you know, you have Lambda functions, you have for, if for CI/CD, you have Vercel, you have Netlify, you have uh, Amplify, you know, all these different solutions there. Um, tell me a little bit about one of your fun uh, cloud databases that you tried or, or any database that you tried and you tried it and suddenly felt this doesn't do what I wanted. Give me a, give me some story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've, we've talked about this when we were chatting before, but right. for, for me, that's Mongo you know, in a nutshell. And uh, it's not that Mongo specifically is a bad database. It's not. It's very, very purposeful. Yeah. And you need to make sure you're using it for the absolute right purpose. Otherwise, you know, it's just a disaster. Um, And and that can be said about any database realistically. But I I feel like, you know, Mongo kind of got like the, the, the web credibility early on when it hit the scenes, but there's, I mean, the memes out there are still great. Um, yeah. You know, of, you know, it's the fastest database out there because it's, everything's piped to dev null, you know. That, that <laughs> is so wrong. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, that and DynamoDB to me are, are both of like two, and, and I guess even Firebase for me too. Those three systems are kind of, you know, they're very purpose built. And if you don't use them for the right purpose, you really shoot yourself in the foot. Right. Yeah. And so we've done things in Mongo. I've, I've done, you know, probably 10 plus different projects in it before. Right. Some for the proper use case and many that weren't or, or started off in the proper use case and ended up not being the right use case at all. And so, you know, the biggest challenge when we have done things inside of like MongoDB, for example, and as to say, just in general document databases, is that you end up needing a relational portion of it. And the more relations you end up getting into, the more you end up fighting it. And so, you know, MongoDBs with this um, aggregation functions, for example, are a great example. They're hard for people to write. They're hard for people to understand. And, And so you end up using this whole aggregation pipeline that, you know, it's essentially like you're almost writing, you know, JavaScript to to do everything. So you're essentially using MapReduce. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of it just comes down to like, okay, we need to 
for a relational type system, we need to store the data, you know, in this part, but we also need to store it over here. And now we're managing two different distinct portions of data and who's, who owns it and who doesn't own it and what happens when it gets out of sync. And because eventually there's going to be a programming bug and now it's out of sync and who wins, right? You know, and, and that has been really the, the difficult part for simple. I mean, it's not that's it's like my grandma's recipe book. It would be awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but most systems get highly relational. So it's really great at documents. It's really great at, you know, JSON type structures. But, you know, we have, we have Postgres and we have CockroachDB and we have other systems out there that have all, and MySQL for that matter, have all added JSON types. Right. And now the JSON's all queryable and indexable, right? You know, you can't always get to like the nth degree of indexing within that JSON structure, but, you know, one would argue don't, don't store something nine levels deep in JSON. You probably did something wrong, right? You know, yeah, that's um, way too deep. Yeah. You know, so, so it's like, well, you know, use, use the right tool for the right job. Yeah. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, even about serverless is that if, if you are not processing an immense amount of data where, you know, putting in place Cassandra, Mongo, or otherwise for a document store makes sense to have two different data stores. Right. Then just use a relational system that has a document, you know, ability. Yeah. Uh, you're you're going to get a lot more gains out of that. And then it's relational, more tools work with it. It's easier to manage, more systems. People understand it, more DevOps folks understand how to manage it because yeah. they've been a that that technology has been around for a lot longer. And even, yeah, yeah. you know, business users are more like BAs, PMs, et cetera, understand how to query a database. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is like, I mean, in colleges today or anywhere around the world, people are still run, learning SQL. That's how you talk to data. Like that language is not going to go away. I think my perspective is now in hindsight, after 15 years of looking at SQL, no SQL, now distributed SQL is that the industry needed something between 2012, 10 to 18, where we needed scale and we didn't know how to do it. We couldn't do it with Postgres. And of course, if you use Oracle, you had to do a golden gate and go through this complex uh, with Postgres, you had to do sharding and added all of these things. And yep. then NoSQL kind of came in and then Mongo came at the right time, say, look at this, how you can just directly write a document to your database, fetch it back goes with your API story, everything like they it made sense. But as you started scaling, I felt like uh, we realized that you cannot continue to operate it. And again, I like what you said. It is a very purposeful database. Like even DocumentDB, I've had use cases where I've used or come across folks who have used DocumentDB. Works great initially, but you scale to say 64 terabytes of data on it and then you're freaking spending millions of dollars on your AWS bill. Uh, which is which is a lot. So um, yeah. unless you're a Capital One, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean I, I've been I've been there, right? You know the, and I, I guess the other part is since you brought up costs, like for me, Mongo, it's like you can't, it's you don't have you don't have guaranteed acid consistency unless you're running you know three yeah. of them, right? And so so your cost is a lot higher, especially for somebody like a startup who you know is bootstrapping. You know, they don't want to spend for three different, you know, database servers that they're not even using right. just to get consistency. Um, you know, it, it can be difficult, right? So 
I, I think I just kind of err on like, you know, for me, a lot of it comes down to, you know, one, where can I find people to work on this stuff? Right. You know, because that's a huge thing, right? If I'm hiring people and I need people to, to be able to uh, work for me and I need to be able to find, you know, mass market, I, I can't go out and pay t- everybody top dollar to find, you know, a technology that not everybody's using. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, technology adoption for me is I, I tend to lag behind a little bit because I'm, you know, I'm probably already actively researching it, but, you know, is that actually going to hit the mainstream or not? Right, right. Right. And so a lot of things don't, you know, we, we've had several instances of that where, you know, like I say, skip a generation and you generally find better. Like great example of even like programming languages is we don't really hear about Scala anymore. Right. You don't, that was the biggest thing for exactly. And I actually, when you said it, that's when I realized, you know, by the 2016, 17, everybody was like, let's use Scala. Let's use Scala for everything. And everybody was like, it's so great. And then I think we, I had never used Scala. I started using Python for my stuff. And I just stuck with it. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of the same thing. And now like, instead of Scala, everything's moved to Rust because it's, it gets a lot lower level from, you know, all the different compilations. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, Russ looks like it's actually getting some real legs now. Um, and, and there's a lot of awesome tooling around it. Yeah. And that and the, another one that comes up a lot nowadays in my conversation is Go, where, yep. uh, you know, people are like, well, they love Go now because it's just so much more easier. The abstraction is way more easy. Uh, it's so- been around forever, though. I mean, Go is, Go is kind of like had that. I don't know. I haven't looked at the chart, but I feel like it's almost kind of like ebbed and flowed at times. Yeah. Like, yeah I, mean, I don't know. It's not going away, but it's, it's, it kind of, you know, regains popularity, then goes out of flavor and then again comes back in. <laughs> yeah. When we, we, Cockroach DB is written in Go, you know, like that was like a fundamental choice that the founders and uh, at the team initially took. And I think uh, the more I talk to people and the more I'm trying to yeah, use Go, Start liking it, you know. But I still love Python because I used Python for so much data-related stuff, and I like the way it did some of the things. Very easy to kind of get started with. But I wanted to go back to what you were kind of saying, like about around standardization, right? Over a over a decade or over a few years, standardization happens, right? If we have seen Kubernetes has kind of become a standard, we have seen now that getting adopted in the cloud with EKS or GKE. Uh, we've we've seen serverless as a pattern become accepted, and then we have so you know lambda function that all the other people doing. We've had Spark become a standard for data processing. Go on back from Hadoop, not not something folks are using. So it's it's we've come to an era where standardization is happening. People are sticking to specific technologies for specific use cases. But in the data space, in the database space, that's not happened, you know, because there are like twenty different <laughs> options. So when do you think we'll come down to say these are the three databases, the four databases that we are going to use for everything? Because, but it's so difficult to get to that. Um, you know, why is it? Why is that happening? What do you think? I'm going to say it's never going to happen, ever. <laughs> I mean, I, I've you know we we almost had it there at one point, but you know databases are is kind of like the wild west. You know, it's uh, it's it's never really going to change. The only thing is, is you know, can we? Can we stick to the ANSI SQL standard at least? You know, that would be nice. That would be good. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've been a part of, you know, multiple things back, um, you know, as well as 10, 15 years ago now already. Holy moly, time goes fast. 
Um, there's a database called InfiniDB that uh, I ended up working with. Um, and for those people that never knew about this thing or, or what this thing was, is that it was a purpose-built database um, for data warehousing. Right. And they were one of the first ones to kind of do MPP, which is multi-parallel processing. And so, you know, I think we're always going to have those things where, you know, there's, there's certain types of databases and systems that, you know, they're going to be built because we're just not doing certain things that works well across the board. Right. And the problem with the data space is, is that you have so many different needs, right? You know, you have, you have the mom and pop shops, you have, you know, the small companies, you have the mid-sized companies, and then you have the uber large companies, right? And they all have various different needs, right? If I'm storing, let's use kind of your example of like 64 terabytes of data, right? I have a very different use case for how I use my data yeah, yeah. than, you know, a, a smaller startup that's got maybe 500 clients, right? And, right. but you know, we both end up using the same type of tooling. Right. And right. so how do you optimize for both those cases? And, and I, I think the answer is you just don't. It's difficult. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like you can categorize, get a generalized solution, but then you're going to have to get specialized at cer certain points. I mean, that's kind of the whole same thing with like going serverless, right? At some point, you might need to start separating things off and becoming more specialized. Yeah. And it's the same thing within a company, right? When you start a company, you have, you know, your, your two founders and you, as, as time goes on, you know, you stop becoming a generalist and become a specialist. Yeah. You know, and, and that happens with everybody's careers, right? Is that you need to eventually decide where you're going to specialize in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or if you're like me, you just, uh, you know, you just keep not specializing in anything and, and try to specialize in everything. Everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that's problematic as well. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's interesting, right? Especially uh, what you said, right? Like there is this thing that there's so many things coming, like technologies are coming and they're active and everybody's using it, like say cloud, right? Within within the cloud, like say if you take AWS, AWS has RDS, uh, they have Aurora, they have DynamoDB, and sometimes they will also create these open source solutions um, and bring it in as their solutions. I've had experiences personally where, you know, cloud platforms like Azure once started a technology said this is what we are going to do and hired, got like a big set of engineers to work on it started building the product got some customers two years down no innovation on it it's still the same still has those problems so my biggest problem now when I'm trying to select technologies and uh, you know when I'm trying to do my own use cases outside trying to build my own applications I realize that I don't I cannot trust certain systems uh, to continue to innovate, continue to, you know, build. Uh, so I am leaning more towards technologies that open up uh, and say, well, we are open source. So the code is always going to be available uh, if something happens. Or I'm leaning towards, hey, can I scale on this technology? Uh, you know, and those are some of my own preferences for designing. Even if I just have, say, one terabyte or two terabyte of data, it's good for me to know that even if they shut the doors down, I will have, uh, open source code. So do you kind of get into situations where you're like, well, we don't really know if this technology is going to shape into something when, of course, when you're exploring something and then pivot to something that is open source. Does that happen often? Yeah, actually, that's, you know, one of our, um, or I guess one of my principles of, of looking into things is, 
you know, let, let's take CockroachDB, for example, because it's a great example. It's solving a, a great, you know, deal for us from, from the standpoint of, you know, we're finally getting, you know, multi-regional replication without having to manage it myself right. and dealing with, you know, master, master replication and, and potential issues. Right. So what happens if CockroachDB was to go away? Um, well, the great part is, is that one, it's open source too. The even better part is, is it's based off of a standardized protocol and it is the Postgres protocol. So yeah. I can go to any Postgres capable system and basically import my data into there and, and I'm good. Um, you know, what happens if the company should suddenly sh- uh, shutters, you know, keep a backup of your data somewhere like Amazon S3, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so keeping a backup just in, in the event that that company completely goes away or, you know, you get kind of the million dollar mistake that we all we all sometimes make in our career of like dropping a production database or deleting the entire hard drive or something right right and they can't restore it for eight hours or whatever um you know those are just typically good things you don't throw away like your whole disaster recovery plan you still need to have one yeah um but i guess a lot of it doesn't directly answer your question in that sense but it's more i look first at what are the kind of protocols that are being used underneath the hoods? Is there a replacement technology that would work for this if the event happened that I needed to move off of it? Um, you know, how hard is that conversion going to be? You know, um, those, those are all things that kind of come into mind, right? Right, right. You know, the, the harder part comes into play when you kind of go more into those serverless structures. If you want to, you know, make it work across the board on everybody's stuff, you know, you have to put in a lot of time and effort on, you know, using something like a Pulami or otherwise where right. you're doing kind of all your orchestration inside of, you know, a, a system like I, or Terraform, I guess you can bring up Terraform into this as well. Yeah. I like the Pulami API, so it's it's just kind of my thing. Um, but, you know, yeah, combine it all these, uh, yeah and, and then making it work inside of all of the different clouds, right? Right, yeah. Um, and, and that can be challenging. That can be a lot of extra resources. And now, now you're kind of back to like, well, maybe we just use Docker or Kubernetes or whatever and, and kind of manage ourselves. Right. Um, you know, but m- most of the time, vast majority of the time, you're going to pick a cloud provider and you're going to stick with it. Yeah. And to your point of like things dying and going away, um, you know, I, I would say GCP is basically my last love of any type of cloud provider because they have a very good history of just randomly killing things. Yeah. You know, that's how their, their entire yeah. IOT product got killed this year. You know, it's like, yeah. you killed off an IOT product? Like, why? Oh, okay. You know, sure. Uh, they're just all why They're not growing as fast as everybody else, but they're growing really fast in terms of like the AI space, right? They've got a lot more yeah. tooling for AI than pretty much every other cloud provider, even though, you know, Microsoft's pretty much the main investor of OpenAI, but okay. yeah, I think that that battle. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how that shapes up. But I've had similar gripes with you know uh, GCP, where they they bring out something and then they they don't work with you enough to kind of talk about why it's good. Whereas what I've seen with AWS is they lean in and they're very customer focused and they're saying, well, and I have a very high opinion on it because I feel like I've tried pretty much everybody and Azure sits in the middle like an elephant because they have been in the space and selling to every damn software company for the last 30 years. So they have a door everywhere. So everybody kind of has some sort of Microsoft, 
uh, but I've generally seen GCP kind of to uh, give bad experience sometimes. But yeah, again, that's my opinion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know I, that's what we're talking about. Those opinions, right? And and yeah, in architecture yeah. and and software, yeah. you know, like I, I think everybody's got an opinion on what languages they love, what databases they love, which cloud providers they love. You know, yeah. Uh, I think what doesn't it's, what it's, doesn't go away is the fact that you're still trying to solve a problem at the end of the day, right? And, and jumping exactly. back into what you do at Spark Labs, do you guys specifically get into certain use cases or domains where you're really good at? Tell us a little bit more about uh, what you guys are really good at or uh, focus domains or you just are a generalist when it comes to use cases as well. We're we're fairly general, I'd say overall. Uh, yeah. You know, we there's there's not much we, that we don't touch. Uh, but I will say that we kind of have our, our main, you know, area that we kind of specialized in for the most part. And I'd say, you know, a lot of that comes into kind of AWS and serverless backends and, um, you know, how do you make those things scale? And, you know, how do you handle that across the board? And then, you know, on the flip side, you know, if we kind of get into, you know, how do we deliver our, our different solutions, you know, we've leaned in very heavily into kind of React Native and I would say Expo specifically, mm. uh, which is kind of built on top of React Native and gives you, you know, a whole bunch of different tooling on top. You know, we've gotten into where, you know, we completely Expo released something called config plugins, you know, which you can basically take any type of, you know, React Native functionality or, you know, just um, complete native functionality and bundle it in so that you can get it into, you know, your React Native application. Um, likewise, we we do a ton of different React front ends, uh, basically for most web pages or PWAs, et cetera. Um, I'd say that we've kind of steered clear um, ourselves of doing any type of um SSR processing, you know, where we're kind of that's kind of the newer thing now of, you know, doing a server side handling of, of certain types of your components. Um, we still kind of put the kibosh on that inside of our group. Um, but, you know, each person has their own thoughts on that. My thoughts just go back to, you know, watching the industry have these cycles, you know, like every 10 years, you know, like for the last Previous to this, like the last 10 years was server-side rendering is terrible. It's so bad. You should never do server-side rendering. Mm -hmm. Where now it's like, oh, well, server-side rendering is okay. Like you should be doing server-side rendering. And I'm like, you, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too, guys. Like, you know, yeah. I know that we're, we're cyclical. Like this this happens in the software development space, happens in the system space. Like we, we keep going back and rehashing old ideas because the old ideas weren't necessarily bad. Yeah. It's just that they need to be rethought. And so, you know, the same thing kind of lends to server-side rendering, right? Where it's like, okay, if I'm building a CMS, yeah, I'm going to be doing some server-side rendering. Right. Because it makes a lot more sense to do that there than on the client. But, you know, all the client's devices are getting so, you know, powerful that I would much rather them have to take the compute cost than me. Right. <laughs> you know? So so I think it's, it's, it's just an interesting area right now and interesting space just overall like in terms of how we do everything um and then you know we've done a ton of different warehousing projects uh where we've kind of helped you know kind of organize data structure it we don't usually get into too much of the machine learning side of it but there's been times the best you know been asked to do machine learning or um ai image generation on one specific project where you know we're basically taking other 
taking a product and kind of masking it into another thing and showing what, you know, something might look like after the fact. Right. Um, you know, helping people merge their stuff from like these, you know, monoliths more into a, into a microserviceable area. I, like I said before, you know, we prefer the monolith, but there's use cases where you should be using step functions or Lambda functions or, you know, how do we, how do we take like all this big layer of our, you know, AI process and how do we, how do we make our compute serverless from that? And, you know, we, we get into some of those things too. So it's, it's just across the board. Yeah. Well, it's good to know. I mean, on that topic, you know, I mean, you, you've basically kind of handled pretty much everything depending on what use case and, uh, and I'm noticing a lot of FOMO in the industry when it comes to AI right now, right? Uh, a fear of missing out and everybody's like, how can I use generative AI? And a lot of people are like, well, um, are, you, are your developers using Copilot and you know things like that? So, what are your thoughts on uh, uh, you know where the space is with companies coming to you and saying, like, how, can we use this with OpenAI? And are you guys exploring any of that? Yeah. So, um, interestingly enough, we're we're using a lot of those tools today. So, right. um, our entire team is using Copilot as well as ChatGPT Pro, right? Nice. Um, you know, I feel like let's let's start just from like the the developer perspective. Is you're going to get left behind if you're not using some form of generative AI, right? You you simply aren't going to be able to compete with competition because it allows you to do just so many more things. But you also have to have the knowledge of when it's lying to you or it writes something very poor. Hallucinations, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I have conversations with ChatGPT trying to tell it how to, you know, improve its answers that, you know, sometimes might be, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs long because I'm like, yeah, what you wrote to me is like how I might do this, you know, five years ago, but even so five years ago, this is still a really poor algorithm. Right. You know, where did you find that? That's a bad idea. You know, like, you know, it's like, okay, you're, you're using big O exponential in something where that should have been like an OLOG one, you know, <laughs> um, Stop doing that. But um, that's the part, right? Like what you are saying, that's where a developer, a seasoned developer or anybody has to look at the AI generated code and uh, still needs intervention because a lot of people feel like they can replace a developer with an AI. And I don't think that's true. I think AI will give you great boilerplate code, but that's just the beginning. And of course, it's helped you save, say, three hours of work and then you get from what you have to do at three hours and one minute. Um, anyways, yeah. Yeah. go ahead. <laughs> I, I use, um, most of those tools like Copilot and OpenAI is, is, you know, I'll say, I'll say, you know, the chat GPT area, especially the, the model four is my assistant, you know, it's my personal assistant. It makes me Same more of it. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, Copilot, it does a pretty good job of doing autocomplete, you know, but it will also drive me nuts because it starts recommending stuff at the end of things that are like, stop recommending. I've, I'm done with this line. Get get out of here. Get out of my way. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, the hard part is like I I used to be a huge Vim user. I've, I've kind of converted over to VS Code now. And it yeah, it was a very painful last year of, of getting myself to stop doing that. But it was just because yeah. in Vim, there's certain types of like stuff that just doesn't work well. Like a lot of this generative AI stuff doesn't work kind of how I really like it to work in Vim. Right, right, right. And so it's like, yeah, I got to I got to 
get past that. Plus I'm in and out of like, you know, 18 different projects that, you know, can be just a variety of just mashups every day. So, yeah. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to leave that, you know, go, go more to the higher level. Like, I, I personally like VS code, you know, I used to use, uh, what I used to use, uh, something else before, uh, by, so the name's not coming to me, but I used to use PyCharm. If you're using yeah, PyCharm, Pi yes, I've used PyCharm, IntelliJ stuff. You know, I've used that, uh, and I used to use some notebooks and stuff also. You know, but VS Code now I feel is pretty good, and I was using an autocomplete uh, integration with it called Tab Nine. I don't know if you know Tab Nine. But I remember hearing about that. Some yeah, it, time it ago. used to I know be something like that. Same thing. Just you put your variables and you put one, it'll autocomplete stuff for you. But I think GitHub Copilot kind of goes a little bit further ahead, uh, you know, in producing that experience for you. Uh, and I know uh, AWS has come up with Code Whispers uh, or something, which is a very weird name, I, in my opinion, Code Whispers. Uh, it's kind of kind of somebody next to you just whispering code, which kind of yeah, scares you a bit. Uh, but I think I generally also feel like ChatGPT4 is my assistant. Like for somebody like me who's, constantly trying to do things I, and I don't want to pay an assistant I think ChatGPT 4 works out for me uh, but again uh, I like I like the way you're thinking about using it and I feel your opinion on using it definitely has to be something that companies have to kind of kind of look at so yeah I, I mean I, I think that's really so I mean just to kind of stick with like the 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 individual part of it from like a developer standpoint I also feel it's going to make like the the barrier to entry a lot more difficult than it used to be mm-hmm. because, you know, overall people are becoming more effective. And so as, as we get more effective, that barrier for an entry level developer grows even further. Right. Right. Um, but we, we also needed it because there's always been, you know, so much more work to be done than can be done. And so it's kind of accelerating that, but you know, there's, there's, you know, pluses and minuses to those things, right? That means that companies are going to grow a lot faster. Um, people are going to come out with more startups faster, you know, and so the, the market's going to get more saturated in a lot of ways. Right. And when we start saturating the market, it's, it's basically a drive towards zero, right? Like how, how can we lower the cost of various different things? How can we do things differently? Um, and, and the big players can take advantage of that as well by kicking people out of the market. Right. And so it's kind of a catch 22 in that sense. But I mean, when we talk about like actually building products with generative AI, we've done a few of them. Um, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we've done it, uh, one where we made a solution for a person that's a little bit more technical and they're kind of in the workout space. We actually built them the ability to essentially write SQL queries uh, using handlebars and build that into a pipeline to where, you know, you can basically build up a variable, execute the next statement to build up more variables. And then at the end of it, you basically can uh, create a handlebars template that's taken in all these different variables that, you know, are based off of their individual user, dynamically generate them an API endpoint for this, which then goes and uh, triggers a request to, to OpenAI's ChatGPT, structures the data back in JSON and gives it to them inside of their app so that they can basically just build anything generative that they want well, that's to produce cool. their user. And it actually goes and recommends to them, um, you know, the, the first use case was, you know, here's the, here's the workouts that they've done. Here's what they're interested in. Here's the workouts that we have. Here's our different categories. Suggest to them 
a workout that will work, you know, that, that you would recommend that they do now and state the reasoning why they should do this workout versus some other workout. Gotcha. And just basically provides them like, hey, you should do this workout next because you've done this category already and this one's going to be better for you because you worked out too hard. Like your last few workouts are really hard. Now, you know, you should do um, a recovery ride. For Got example. it, yeah. So it's basically kind of like reading uh, real time what you have done, what you're doing, and then kind of I'm, I'm assuming you are hitting the open API and you're sending a prompt, the prompt generates a response. You kind of then, uh, you know, render it into the front. You get that experience, put it back, and kind of you have a bi-directional conversation going on. Is that how it is? Essentially, yeah. But we just do a single conversation in this part oh. where it's like the, the whole thing is basically building up all of these different variables because gotcha. you can send a very large message to... So it's like uh, one session. Yeah. It's, it's just one call for that one. Um, you know, later on, we're going to allow for um, pipelining some of those things. Mm. Uh, but, you know, overall, there's really been nothing that we could already do with what we've done unless we yeah. want to use that generative content to base it for another prompt afterwards. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's pretty it's pretty fun. It's pretty efficient. You know, we've already built it. Um, you know, we thought about building a product based off of it. But realistically, it just doesn't make a ton of sense to. Yeah. You know, to I mean, we can generalize the solution and, and, and open source it or we could, you know, I, I really just don't see where that's going to be super valuable for a lot of different people. Because right now it's, it's very focused on the technical front where we basically said this would be, you know, mind blowingly good. But again, it's just that what make a lot of sense for us to build it is why aren't all the business intelligence platforms like the Tableaus and the Salesforces and those things, they all say that they have AI, but they don't really have generative AI built into them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, their, their AI is just not very smart. And yeah. so it's like, I have all of this data, help me make sense of this and come up, you know, here's like my demographics, here's this, here's our target markets. Like this is how things are performing from like our Google analytics and who our market is from saying that. And here's our advertising data. Like, right. what are we missing here? Who should we be going after? Right? right like, right. I just think that we don't ask the proper questions. Yeah. And we have all this data and we can make sense of it in so many different ways. But even with generative AI, if, if we don't ask it the right questions, we're never going to know reasonable yeah. answers. Yeah. I think right. that's, and so what, that's the hard part. Yeah, I think what you said, uh, that's like a use case. Like I know some companies were working on integrating generative AI into BI solutions like Google Analytics is doing that or Data Studio. Um, I think that's going to happen. I think there is a push for uh, removing the junior data analyst role, which is what's going to happen is <laughs> with, with that. Uh, you still will help need data analysts to kind of see because there is so much hallucination happening even still you know uh, and what it's doing is basically is probably reading the data into a pandas library and then applying uh, some histograms to get some information and then produces a result back to you so i definitely feel like that's a use case but the thing is if you want to put or build a product around it the to your point the effort might not be worth it because at some point all these companies are going to say well we need to build that feature in and they'll just put it in uh, integrate that with generative right. AI. Uh, and and that's that's really kind of what I thought too is is you know the the juice isn't going to be worth the squeeze at yeah. the end of the day if you were to build it unless you know you're kind of first to market, which there's already solutions out there. 
Yeah. Um, you know, just none of them are super good, but a lot of them also just get into, you know, right now, generative AI and doing AI is really expensive. It mm -hmm. costs a lot of money to run those workloads. And yeah. sure, you can get those costs down, but you have to be very targeted. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's like all things with computing, right? Like in five years from now, we're going to probably be paying peanuts for, for what it is. Whereas right now, you know, the same workload, you know, let's, let's just say like, um, you know, to, to run all this big data through it that we need to go do to get an answer is going to cost us, you know, $10,000 or, you know, and, you know, five years from now, it's probably going to cost us five cents. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just exponential in terms of that. And so, you know, it's, you have to kind of base that off of like, how valuable is this going to be for my business? Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's the thing with uh, ChatGPT too, right? Like uh, with OpenAI, it's not, e it's not easy to wave. You know, the, each of your API calls is pretty expensive, you know, uh, especially if you have like a large token count, you know, it's, it's not going to be uh, cost effective right now. And that's why I think it's good that there is competition in generative AI space. I like, I'm, I'm exploring like Claude by Anthropic as well as I'm, I'm using Bard and Palm 2 models and testing some of those out on, on site, um, you know, and I think it, that kind of a competition makes sense. Uh, I wanted to go back and kind of comment on, you've come a long way, Mike, from hacking uh, systems and Mac addresses <laughs> in the late 90s, early 2000s to now generative AI. And that's, it's been a big jump, you know, where technology is. Where do you think we are going next? You know, I know everybody's talking about AI. Like, where do you feel, how do you anticipate things are going to look like in two years in terms of... Uh, I think two years is, it is a little bit more predictable yeah. You know, when we, when we start getting five, 10 years out, it gets, it gets pretty unpredictable, right? Like, you know, where are my flying cars? We were supposed to have those, you know, oh, like man. five decades ago, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, back where's the jets up for all of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think in terms of where we're at today, where we're going to be in two years, you know, we're definitely going to be doing a lot more artificial intelligence. I think that's going to be baked into, you know, just about everything we do. Right. Um, you know, from a, from a market standpoint and from, you know, a, a life standpoint, it's just going to be more and more baked into everything. Right. And I think it's one of those fundamental shifts that we're going to be seeing in the industry. Uh, you know, those, those don't come around a lot. Right. You know, this is a fund of, this is going to change the world. It's going to change our environment. It's going to change how we do things. Right. Um, from, from that standpoint, how does it change like a technologist or a developer's role or, or systems role? I don't think it's going to change it all that much. Um, you're still going to need people. AI is not going to replace programmers. Somebody is still going to have to write code. Yes. It's, it might get better at it. It might make that, you know, the, the barrier to who's writing it, you know, a higher degree, maybe, maybe eventually, you know, we don't really have mid-level developers anymore. We we're yeah. sitting with, you know, um, staff engineers and architects. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is somebody's still going to have to review it at the end of the day, somebody has got to be responsible for it. And generative AI might be able to build out most of the things for you, but it's not, it's not going to be able to detect everything for you. You're not going to, you know, at some point, yeah, we might be able to get to the point where we're, you know, kind of in a 
Marvel Iron Man movie, um, you know, pointing and, and, and kind of manipulating things with our hands and shoving things, you know, back and forth. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of coming in what another year we're going to have. Vision Pro. Yeah. Vision Pro. Right. Yeah. But, but also, you know, that's a $3,500 computer that you're going to wear on your face. Right. I, I, I can't justify spending $3,500. I think my wife would kill me if I did that. Same here. You know, so, we have a lot in common there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is it, is it cool? Absolutely. Will I take one? If I can, if, if, if work will pay for it, sure. You know, yeah, I'd love yeah. it. Uh, I think, but, but, but I am sort of excited for that uh, kind of an interaction with technology, honestly. Uh, but at the same time, um, that's part of being on being on the innovation spectrum, right? Like if you're on, if you're going to be that innovator, get that product, do get the benefit of testing it out and having an opinion. Um, but if anybody has a shot of bringing something like that, I think it's Apple, you know. It is. I think we are I mean, trying. Kinda, yeah. You kind of go back to things like Google Glass, right? They were just a little bit before their time. Yeah. Right. It was a little too soon. And now I think if they were to release something like Google Glass, it would have been, you know, phenomenal. It would have been a huge uptick. Exactly. Because we're used to it. We're used to, you know, that type of thing. But at the same point, like, you know, what, what, keeps getting asked and kind of ignored in the AI space, the machine learning space, you know, the, the headset space is what is this doing to one, our privacy mm -hmm. and, you know, two, what is it doing to ethics across okay. the board? Because there's, there's a lot of different things there. I mean, ethic, ethically, like some of the stuff that can come out of AI is not ethically sane at all. And I mean, I could feed it like your whole profile and have it give me a profile on you that right. determines uh, various things. I mean, I've done a couple different things where and it's, and it's really hard to make it do it, but like using AI to do um, some more, you, you do slap some parts that are content driven and then you do other parts that um you know are more just kind of core algorithmic based and things like that so i'll give you a great example of a concept that we kind of tried out that might actually go out at some point but essentially i can i can tell chat gpt like okay here is um a job posting here are here is you know some additional things that we're looking for now, here is a resume, hmm. right? I just fed ChatGPT your resume. Now, ChatGPT knows about you, right? Yeah. Um, but, but at the same point, and I go, okay, you know, take, I don't want you to um, take anything into consideration here other than these aspects, be as gender neutral as possible, be as, um, you know, sex neutral, be, be neutral across the board when it comes to, you know, all these different factors. Right. And now I want you to tell me, you know, what makes this person a great candidate and what are their red flags? Mm. And it actually does a surprisingly awesome job at that. Mm. But at the same point now, is that ethically, you know, saying I'm feeding your resume to a third party company yeah. You know, sure. I can just put in my terms of service and, and, yeah. and, you know, off I go and our privacy policy. And, hey, you know, it's, we, we told you we were going to work with third parties, right? You know, what they do with their, that data, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, this gets into some of the new California legislation, you know, that are it's not new anymore, 
and and kind of GDPR. But, you know, the rest of the states are a hodgepodge of just randomness. And yeah. so I don't know it. It's kind of, you know, we're kind of at that area where it's like it's both super exciting and just super terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, machines are going to be making more decisions for us and based off of us than, than we probably care to know. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Like, I feel like we have to use the technology. We have to uh, use it in an appropriate way. But at the same time, we have to. People who are using, we enough vocal about keeping it, uh, the ethics around it, right? Like, I just... It's funny and it's weird that I've just went and watched Oppenheimer, uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> and then we did develop something that was cutting edge. I mean, if you forget about what they did with fission and uh, the whole atomic bomb was, they came up with like this fantastic way of using this technology, a breakthrough in itself. But then again, what it created was, uh, a, it changed the way the world really is today. And I feel like AI is at that, uh, level where we do, do need to be vocal about the ethics around it. And I'm glad that if you guys are using it, you're also kind of bringing that idea that we have to look at privacy, look at data as you develop applications around it for use, users. You know, So that's pretty good. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help a lot of things. It's just creates a new set of problems that we don't yet know how to solve or understand. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I don't think regulations necessarily the, the answer for that. You know, there's probably going to be some components of that, but, you know, no countries are all going to agree on the same standardization of it. So it's going to be very, so, you know, that becomes a mess for every other company using it, you know? Yeah. It's just, and think about how many different types of AI models that are going to be running around soon. Like we already can count about at least five to 10. Uh, and then there are already other people kind of ex- exploring different things. So, oh yeah, just, just go out on the piece and take a look at all the different models that exist already. I mean, there's, exactly. there's, millions and there are some are based off of others and some are brand new concepts and you know some of them have machine learning concepts that built into them so them don't some just require pre-training some are continually learning you know it's just yeah, like yeah. well there's you know we we thought that we already had so much data available right. to us and now we're generating data to fill even more data yeah. to try to consume you know like that's that's part of the reason like I even think like AI has to exist anyways because we can't even consume all this data. We have no idea. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll like, be interesting though. Like the one thing I was curious about and, and as we I know we are we've bent over uh, the time that we have, but we've had historically, you know, I was a baby because I watched Oppenheimer, you know. I thought that when I was watching the movie, I was one of the things I was really curious about was that they came up with original thought and original ideas on learning about the world and the way it is. And it came through a lot of thought, a lot of calculation and a lot of other things. I would be really surprised at this point because what we have with AI right now is we have trained whatever we have available. So it's basically trained on information and things that we have, we already understand. I want to see if we will have some major breakthrough in physics because of AI. If that happens, that's the day I'd be like, okay, this is this is really serious, you know, like I, I really want to see that happen. So if it happened or not, I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I, I think that that industry in that area has been, you know, taking off. I mean, um, think of all the different revelations we've had just in, you know, medicine mm-hmm. in like last couple of years is just outstanding. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's just from like machine learning and being able to compare all these different ingredients together and see like all this 
you know, we, we can kind of take it, take the blender approach, which would, you know, for us take, you know, an average human, you know, years yeah. and we can just throw it into the computer and it's, and it's learning, you know, and this is, is it kind of goes back to like when computers were created, right? We had punch cards right, and right. they sent punch cards out and now like the computing power is so much greater. And now we're getting into quantum computing with AI like that. That's yeah, going to yeah. be pretty insane. Like the amount of stuff we can process in this and the variations of that, it's just going to be incredible. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, that's why when just, they, that's why when the, when the juice came out last week, did you hear about that in, on the archive paper, the, this, the room temperature semiconductor? Um, I did. Yeah, you should you should go check it out later. Probably when people get to hear this episode, they will know when it was recorded because because <laughs> I should. <laughs> but because uh, I mean, I I think it still needs to be peer reviewed. But what they what it came out was what they're saying is they have been able to develop a room temperature semiconductor, which is game changing. It's kind of a big discovery because if that can be done, it can be applied into uh, you know quantum uh, mechanics and you know quantum computers, and which I feel is one of those next areas that's looking for a bit of breakthrough. So yeah, it'll be fascinating. By the time we have our second conversation, we will have some wilds to slow down. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have plenty to talk about. That's, that's for sure. I know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just great. And I mean, I, I love the technology side of it. It's just, you know, there's, there's so many different areas to explore. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface right now. Like AI has been around for a while. It's getting to the point where it's reaching a little bit more of a mass market because it's gotten so much cheaper to run based off of where GPUs have gotten and CPUs have gotten. I mean, we 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 aren't really innovating in the CPU space anymore. We're now we're now completely in the GPU space trying to get those, you know, right. going. Yeah, yeah. And so that area still has a long way to go, and they're they're just scratching the surface on it, right? right. You know, I think we've reached the limit of the amount of semiconductors we can put in a uh, you know, like um, the amount of pack things we can pack into a chip, I think we have reached that limit or reaching that, you know, is what Moore's law or something. Uh, I think we've already yeah. kind of gotten to that limit. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't seen any chip from Intel uh, that's come out that's really, you know, excited me. I did like the new ARM chips. If, you, if you've taken a weird tangent on hardware, but yeah, I mean, I like the new ARM stuff that Apple's produced, uh, but I do feel like the quantum is going to be very interesting. If, uh, as it kind of breakthroughs into the mainstream, so. yeah, I think that's kind of the next the next space of it, right? Is is yeah. there's not really a lot of other space for CPUs to go? Yeah, we've, we're we're toying with some different architectures and things of that nature, but but nothing's really you know like been exciting from that standpoint. Yeah. And in quite some time, I mean, the the ARM architecture has been kind of a, a a nice thing, but I mean, those types of architectures aren't anything new. It's just that yeah, yeah, then the industry was ready to adopt something else that could lower the price point of, you know, implementations and um, realistically within like the IOT sector, yeah. right? Is we needed, we needed lower powered chips that weren't going to be super power hungry that, that were able to process quite a bit of data. And, and that's kind of where ARM came from before you're trying to like run Celerons and they just didn't work. Yeah. Hundred percent. Wow. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation because we went from uh, a tangent in Spark Labs and talking about your early, early career to talking about you know Oppenheimer and a little bit of uh, you know quantum mechanics and I think great conversation around AI. You know, I'm really excited, Mike, on how you and Spark Labs kind of 
make a difference by using all these different technologies. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And the way I see this, it's one of those first conversations. And again, we'll hopefully run this down again and do a second conversation. So absolutely. No, I, I, I enjoy conversations like this. So, so anytime, I mean, maybe, maybe we just dive into a single subject later. <laughs> yeah, we should probably do that. <laughs> I think with you and I, it will be difficult for us to do because, you know, we just, I think we, you've worked on a lot of different things and I have passions for different uh, ideas as well. So, but it, it, you, you did a great job of kind of helping us through understanding how you're designing stuff and you know thanks for your opinions and all opinions are welcome here so appreciate it awesome thank you so much